Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Welcome to um, our first discussion from the many discussions that we're going to have uh, on this podcast called The Maradiya Show um, I'm your host Shadi Muhammad meeting Muslims as well as non-Muslims meeting people where they are so today's um, discussion is going to be centered on my first podcast, which is on Anchor. If you look on Anchor and you find the Maradia show, you will find that the first um, episode is the five stages of marriage. So that's that's the first that's the first episode. So I posted that yesterday. A lot of you guys have uh, listened to it. And uh, so today, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to uh, jump into some of the discussions, some of the, you know, the issues that were mentioned. So I, I chose five. I chose five that I thought that were, you know, very important issues um, that we're going to deal with, that I'm going to touch on. If, if you guys listen to the podcast yourself and there were some very important issues that you think that we need to discuss more about, then you can mention those, inshallah. Moving forward, probably my next um, my next podcast is going to be on third on, on Wednesday, inshallah. I'm I'm still working. My computer is right here, still trying to figure out this um, YouTube live situation. For some reason, it's not working. Mine's is not working. Um, I don't know what's going on. Uh, this is the second time that I tried to do this. Um, and it does not seem to be working for me. Um, so, we'll, I'll get that figured out. By Wednesday, inshallah, I'll have it all figured out. All right. So, the first thing that I wanted to address today uh, is something that I mentioned in the podcast. The five stages of marriage. And uh, that is uh, co-parenting with a stranger. All right. So, the thing is, is that let me get through the five that I'm that I'm going to mention. Um, what you guys can do is you can either shoot me an email because I, I have my other phone recording here. So you guys can either shoot me an email or you can, you know, um, find a way to get the question to me, um, either Facebook or um, Instagram, or you can send it directly to my email, Imam Shadid Muhammad at Gmail. And uh, once I'm done with the five that I'm dealing with, uh, I'll go back and I'll check before I begin dealing with some of the things that you guys um, mentioned. And now this is not a lecture, so I don't want to keep talking for the whole time that we have. All right. Um, I want you guys to chime in. I wish that there was. Um, I actually have Zoom. I'm, I'm really thinking about opening up my Zoom. Um, and for those of you who want to you know, live chat. I'm just my, my fear is that it may be too many people. And so Zoom may only allow a certain amount of people. And that's my that because I would like to engage you guys. I would like to see you engage you hear you uh, with Periscope and all of these other um, apps. We're kind of limited in terms of our interaction. All right. Um, yes. Imam Shadid Muhammad at Gmail with two E's inshallah. Um, so I have my other phone here so I can just go on my email and check periodically uh, to see if you guys have sent in any um, questions. So if you post anything right now, 
I, I, I'm horrible at multitasking, so I'm not going to be able to get to it if you post it now. So let me deal with the five things that I picked out. And then if you guys listen to the podcast and there were other things that you believe that should be addressed or, you know, should be mentioned, then we'll get to that. All right. All right. So the first thing that I I picked out that I wanted to deal with was co-parenting with a complete stranger in the podcast, the, the five stages of marriage. I mentioned that a lot of times in the Muslim community, we marry so quickly we get married so quickly. The, 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 from the time that we meet each other to the time that we get married, it's a very, very short period of time. All right. And obviously, at the beginning of you know, any meeting, everybody is wearing a mask. Everybody has on their best their game face. Everybody's bringing their A game, their a game to, the, um, you know, to the sit down table. You know, and everybody's on their best behavior. And we don't give ourselves enough time to get to know the person. And then once we rush through the sit down process, I just received the email just yesterday um, where a sister said, you know, the brother was, you know, rushing her through the sit down process or whatever the case. May, um, right. Rushing her through the sit down process. And then finally, she marries him, you know, after being pressured so much and rushed so much um, and really realizing at the end of that, that you didn't really know the person. You know, you didn't really know the person. You didn't get a chance to see them in their element. So what ends up happening is that we rush through the marriage process. We hurry up and get married. And obviously, that is from shaitan. Make no mistake about that. The Prophet said that hastiness is from shaitan. Hastiness is from shaitan. All right. The only thing that we should be hasty in doing is obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And while a person may say, well, marriage is something that we should hasten to do. No, it is not. Because there are a lot of variables. There are a lot of components to marriage. We talk, this is somebody that you're talking about spending the rest of your life with. This is not, you know, like I, I just want to be married to you for the next six months or I want to be married to you for the next two or three years. This is someone that you want to spend the rest of your life with. Don't you think that that should, you know, take, you know, what I mean, like, don't you think you should take your time with that? And nobody's saying that you should drag it out into a year or two years. I'm not saying that. But don't you think that 30 days, 60 days is just really not enough time to get to know the person that you are going to spend the rest of your life with? I, I would like to think so. All right. And what ends up happening is that um, we marry very quickly. And then right after getting married, there is no preparation to build a family. There, there is no thought process behind building a family. So we marry and then we have unprotected sex, right? The, 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 the night that we consummate the marriage, I know people who the night they consummated the marriage, the woman became a wife and a mother in the same night. The woman became a wife and a mother in the same night. And I mean, like, that's heavy. That's heavy because here you are now about to have someone's child that you just married that you just met three or four weeks ago. You just met a month ago, and now you're about to have this person's child, which means that you are now connected, bonded to this individual. Even if the marriage doesn't work, you're still connected to this individual for the next 18 to 20 years, right? 
until the child becomes an adult. You are stuck. You're connected to this person. Even if the marriage doesn't work. Even if the marriage doesn't work. And, you know, that's, that's heavy, man. That's heavy. And so now the marriage crumbles. All right. Fast forward. Two, three years down the line, marriage crumbles. And the two, you know, husband and wife separate. And now, you know, they have to co-parent. But you are co-parenting with someone who is a complete stranger because you have yet to see them in their element. You don't see them in their element. You got pregnant the same night you got married. <laughs> and now you have to co-parent with this person for the next 18 years. And those, you know, brothers and sisters and, you know, people who are not Muslim who, you know, may have made this mistake as well. You know better than anyone how daunting that is and, and how toxic that can be because once you have the child or once that woman has your child and you begin to see a whole different side of them, you saw them as a husband or a wife for the first couple of weeks you were married. You never got a chance to see them as a parent. And while some people make, you know, while some people may make good spouses, right, they're horrible parents. Some people may make good spouses. They're horrible parents. And, but you never got a chance to see them in that element. Right? And, and obviously I'm speaking for people who you know, don't have children. People who got married. Right? <laughs> people who got married and you know, didn't have any children. Obviously if the person that you are marrying has children from a pre-existing, right? pre-existing relationship... Then you should take your time even more because if you have children and that person has children, you already understand how you like for your children to be raised. You understand your parenting style, your parenting technique, right? Whether you are authoritarian parent, whether you're authoritative parent, whether you are passive parent, or whether you are a neglectful parent, Whatever your style of parenting is, you know how you want your children to be raised. So that would mean that if you are marrying someone who has children themselves, that you would kind of pump the brakes a little bit and watch how they parent. So you can make sure that their parent style, parenting style is in sync with your parenting style. Because if it's not, guess what? That is just another layer of obstacles that is going to hinder you and your spouse from reaching marital bliss. <laughs> I'm just I'm telling you. And it's like for some reason we don't think like that in the Muslim community. It's like we don't those things don't cross our minds. It's like how are you a woman with children marrying a man who has children from a previous relationship? Right. Um, and. You don't take the time out to monitor his parenting style, to see how he parents with his children. Is he a neglectful parent? Is he a passive parent? Is he, you know, uh, an authoritative parent? Is he an authoritarian, tyrannical parent? You know, you need to monitor that. And the same thing with the brothers, because essentially you are putting your child potentially in harm's way. Because let's just say, let's say you are a passive parent, all right? You set rules for your children, but you don't follow up on those rules. Kid can, you know, kind of come and go as they please. You're a passive parent. And there's some people, especially a lot of women who, you know, 
experience divorce, they are very passive parents a lot of times because they're trying to overcompensate for the divorce. All right. You divorced the children's father or you separated from the children's father. So there's some guilt. There's some shame. There's emotions. And I'm not I'm not saying anything is wrong with that. But what I am saying is that sometimes when you separate from the child's father as a woman, you start to feel these emotions, guilt, shame, embarrassment. You start to overcompensate for that with your children by being very lax, very, you know, passive and kind of letting them get away with things because you are overcompensating for your feelings of guilt, shame and embarrassment. You feel guilty that you separated those children from their father. All right. And you shouldn't feel guilty because if the marriage was not working, if the marriage was toxic, then you were actually doing your children a favor. All right. You were actually doing your children a favor. All right. But some parents, you know, they they're passive parents, either because their parents were passive. And so they're, you know, as parents themselves, they begin to become extensions of their parents parenting. You guys follow me. So passive parenting can 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 happen as a for a number of reasons. It's not just because of divorce. It could just be because. That's just who you are. You're a passive person and your passive parenting is just an extension of your personality or you were raised by passive parents or authoritarian parents, meaning you set rules, but you don't explain to the children the rules. It's like, do as I say, right? Do what I say and don't question me. That's a authoritarian parent. So if you as a woman or man have children and you are a passive parent with your children and then you marry someone who is an authoritarian, right? That's going to be problems. It's going to be problematic. It's going to be problematic because you are now inviting someone into the life of your child that is the polar opposite of the way that you have been raising your child. And it can create Trauma for the child, for yourself. And, and I mean, in the Islamic community, it's like this is, this is the norm. You get these brothers who come in, you know, believing that they're representing the Sunnah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, hardcore Sunnah, Sunni, you know, Salafi, whatever the case may be. And he believes in his mind that I represent authority. I represent, you know, you know boundaries, you know, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to put my wife and her passive parenting, you know, children, you know, I'm going to put them on the sunnah, right? <laughs> and what you end up doing is making those children hate Islam. Yeah. You end up making those children hate Islam. They, they hate the religion because of you. All right. And that's not to say that a, an authoritarian and a passive, two polar opposites cannot meet in the middle somewhere and find the perfect balance for themselves and their children. But that takes a level of consciousness. That takes a level of awareness. <laughs> we have to be aware, actually, of our parenting styles. So what I'm saying is that in the Islamic community, we have a whole bunch of brothers and sisters that are co-parenting with one another and they are complete strangers. They are, right? Right, If provided the authoritarian is willing to change. That's why I said there has to be a, a level of awareness there. 
and maybe not the authoritarian. That's a that's a that's the extreme. Maybe the authoritative. All right. The authoritative parent is the one who sets boundaries, sets rules in the home for the children and then follows up on those rules by explaining to the children why, by not necessarily letting them get away, by you know giving them punishments that are fitting or befitting the crimes or the infractions of the children. That is the authoritative parent. All right. And that is the middle course between the two polar extremes. Right. That is the that is the middle course. And we should as Muslims, we should always opt for the middle course. Right. That that should always be, you know, our trajectory. It should always be the middle course. All right. So all I'm saying is that, you know, co-parenting with complete strangers has made life for many Muslims uh, very toxic. Am I telling any lies here? Is is anybody that disagrees with what I'm saying? All right. I I mean, like, this is what it is. So what I'm saying is that, number one, take your time. There's a difference between marrying someone and marrying them for you. Like both of you, you know, are past the stage or phase in your life where you want children. So now you all you have to focus on is that person being in your life. But if you are marrying someone and you are looking forward to having children with that person, then you might want to, you know, if he or she, neither one of them has any children, then they might want to discuss parenting styles ahead of time. If they have children, then they should be even more uh, more cautious and, you know, pursuing marriage with each other, understanding that they have children from previous situations. And I want to make sure that I am parenting with someone that I understand you as a parent. So let me just say this, brothers and sisters who have children, and most of us do, most of us that have children, if you are looking for marriage right now in your life, if right now in this time that you are looking for marriage, You should not be looking just for a husband or just for a wife. You're also looking for a parent, a co-parent. Because if you have children from a pre-existing relationship, that is what that husband or wife is going to essentially be, a co-parent with you. (laughs) So you are not just looking for a husband or a wife. (laughs) You are looking for a husband or a wife and a co-parent. You guys follow me. So it's a whole different ball game when you have children. Stop going into the sit down, right? Stop going into the sit down saying, I'm looking for a husband. I'm looking for a wife. Do you have children? Yeah. Then you're not just looking for a husband and a wife. If you are, if you have children and you are not married and you are looking for marriage, you are not just looking for a husband or a wife. You're also looking for a co-parent. And that's provided your children are still within the developing stages. If they are adults, then obviously that, that's neither here nor there. They're, your children are adults. But I'm saying if your children are small and you're still and they're still in their developmental phases, then you are not just looking for a husband and a wife. You are actually looking for a husband or a wife and you're looking for a co-parent, someone to help you raise these children. It's a package deal. Absolutely. And for the life of me, I don't understand why don't we go into situ. You lead with that. Authoritarian parent uh, is the best is the best style. No, it's not. It's extreme. 
The strictest parents create the sneakiest children. The authoritarian parenting is not the best style. I mean, to each his own. <laughs> if that's what you choose to do, then to each his own. Don't let me. Uh, this is not a debate. <laughs> I'm not raising my children as an authoritarian. <laughs> Authoritative, yes. Authoritative, yes. Authoritarian, no. So that is one of the things that I mentioned um, in the five stages of marriage. Uh, Co-parenting with a complete stranger. We rush into marriages. We have children with people that we barely know. And then now we are stuck, right? We are stuck co-parenting with a person who is a complete stranger. And brothers and sisters have seen different sides of each other after they had children. And then it's like, damn, I never knew that you were really like this because you didn't give yourself an opportunity to see them in their element. And then we use, and this is the last point that I'll make about this. We use, for example, hadith. We use Islamic texts to justify having children immediately. So we'll say, well, the Prophet ﷺ said that he wants to have his ummah, his nation, be the largest nation, Yom Qiyamah. And while that may be true, the Sahaba didn't abandon their children. <laughs> the Sahaba did not abandon their children. So if you're using the hadith to forcefully, you know, get a woman or a man to hurry up and have children with you, if you're using Islamic texts, then also use the context of that text. Because it's not just about having an abundance, a big ummah. We want a big ummah of children that have no parents. <laughs> I, I don't understand how that works. <laughs> we want a large ummah of men and women that are not growing up with their parents <laughs> because of the increase, the influx of divorce. I mean, is that, the, is that what the Prophet ﷺ was alluding to when he said that I want my ummah to be the largest ummah, Yom Al-Qiyamah? He, he said the largest ummah, not the largest unhealthy ummah. <laughs> I, I just don't understand why we don't put context <laughs> All right, you, you can't use the sunnah to negate common sense. Right, he didn't say the largest dysfunctional ummah, right? Because you got a bunch of men and women that are being raised without their parents, you know, being raised in a bunch of step-parenting situations that they themselves are dysfunctional, right? Simply because we want to have the largest ummah, so we're using textual evidences now, minus the context to those texts, to forcefully encourage people to have children with us? No. If you're not going to be there, then this whole idea of have, coming on Yom Al-Qiyamah with the largest ummah, that it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply. <laughs> I'm, I'm just really, you know, and I mean, it's, it's really sad that, you know, as a Muslim ummah, that we would resort to using Islamic texts, you know, to force brothers and sisters to have children two people get married we're like you have any children yet no well, what are you guys waiting for it's the sunnah to have children yeah it's the sunnah to stay around your children too it's the sunnah to stay and take care of your children too that's the sunnah as well 
Not just having baby after baby after baby and leaving the women to take care of the children on their own. That's not the sunnah. <laughs> Where, what part of Islam is that? But that's what we're seeing. We're seeing brothers and sisters get married and then divorced. And then the women are left with the task of raising the children by themselves. That, that's what we're seeing. And in, in each and every relationship some of these brothers go into, we're using the same text. You know, the prophet said he wanted his ummah to be the largest ummah. Yeah, but if you're not going to be around, you're not going to stick around after we have the children, then why are you using that hadith to make me have your child? <laughs> he doesn't want to have children. No, it's not that I don't want to have children. I want to make sure that I have children with the right person. You know what I mean? A trail of child support and arrears. Absolutely. All right, so we clear on that. That was the first issue. The second issue, second issue is uh, we shouldn't fall in love before marriage. This is a heavy one. We should not fall in love before we get married. One of the things that I mentioned on uh, the podcast was that in the five stages of marriage is that many brothers and sisters get upset and try to circumvent the Islamic protocol for marriage. And most of us do. Most of us do not follow. So all this idea of following the sunnah, most of us don't follow the sunnah. Most of us has, have resorted to the Bani Israel tactics when it comes to marriage. We resort to Bani Israel. What do I mean when I say resort to Bani Israel tactics? All right. Prophet Moses, Prophet Musa was the prophet before Jesus and then before Muhammad. All right. So he was the second prophet before Muhammad. All right. And he had a whole entire nation and his nation, because Jesus never really assumed that position. All right. Of where he has, you know, a whole nation of people behind him and their rules and laws and a sharia to given to him or whatever. He's going to come back in as a Muslim towards the last days and he's going to fulfill the rest of his mission as a Muslim. However, the only prophet before Muhammad that had a nation that resembled our nation is Bani Israel, was Prophet Musa, Prophet Moses. All right. And if you remember on the night journey, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave the Prophet sallallahu the commandment for salah and the prayer was actually 50 times a day at the beginning and as Prophet Muhammad was descending, going back down to the lowest heaven, he came across Prophet Musa. And Prophet Musa asked him, what did your Lord command you? And he said, my Lord commanded me with 50 prayers a day. He said, go back and tell your Lord or ask your Lord to decrease the number of prayers because I have led a nation before you. And they are not your nation is not going to be able to handle that. So Musa was making the connection there, showing Prophet Muhammad wasallam that. I was just like you. I led an entire nation of people. And throughout my experience, your people will never be able to handle 50 prayers a day. All right. And we know the rest of the story. The prophet kept going back and forth until he decreased it to five. So that's showing you that, you know, Musa was making the connection between his experience raising his ummah and the experience that Prophet Muhammad was going to have with his ummah. So when I say that many of us, as it relates to the protocol of marriage, we function like Beni Israel, I'm just making a comparison between the behavior 
of Bani Israel, the Jewish uh, community, and, and how they interacted with the laws of Moses and the way that we interact with the laws of Muhammad وسلم, in Islam. And we resemble them almost to the T. So here we have in Islam all of these different protocols, right? That there has to be a wali, there has to be a male guardian for the woman. Uh, there has to be a marriage contract. Um, there has to be witnesses, you know, reliable witnesses, not just two people you grabbed off the street to come and bear witness. All right. Marriages should be done in public. All of Prophet Muhammad's marriages were done in public. The Prophet وسلم, never got married in private. Right. And, and I urge sisters to please stop doing that. Stop enabling men to continue with their shenanigans because a man cannot marry you in private if you don't allow him to. A man cannot marry you secretly if you don't allow him to. <laughs> you understand? He has to have your permission to marry him. He has to have your wali's permission to marry him. You understand? So we cannot blame all of the shenanigans that we see going on in our communities totally on the men. Men are going to be men. Men are going to do them. But it's for the women to adhere to the Islamic protocol of marriage to ensure that men follow exactly what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded them to follow. Women are not enforcing that. And you can't say that you're ignorant, you didn't know, he told you this, he told you that. No, nah, I'm not buying that. Why? Because you know every damn thing else. <laughs> you know everything else. But when he told you all you needed was two witnesses, his man can be your wali, you fell for that. Oh, well, that's what he told me. So now all of a sudden you're conveniently ignorant? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I don't buy that, man. You're conveniently ignorant, right? You knew he could marry more than one wife, <laughs> right? You knew that, but you didn't know he could marry you and not tell his first wife about you, right? You didn't know that. This convenient ignorance. I'm sorry, I'm not buying that. You knew that he could marry multiple wives, but you didn't know that his marriage had to be public, you didn't know that Prophet Muhammad's marriages were all public, all documented. We have hadith, authentic text that documents every single marriage of Prophet Muhammad. And if the man that you are marrying claims to be a follower of the Sunnah, a follower of Prophet Muhammad, someone who bears witness that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, I'm sorry. And he didn't know that? Like, nah, I'm not buying that. So what we do is we employ the tactics of Bani Israel. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran, he prohibited Bani Israel from fishing on the Sabbath. Right? The Sabbath was their day of worship, Saturday. Just as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited Muslims from working during the time of Jumu'ah. Right? It's the same commandment. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhalladhina amanu, idha nudiya lissalati miyawm aljumu'ati fas'aw ila dhikrillahi wa dharul bay'ah. Allah says, O oh, you who believe, when the call is made on the day of Jumu'ah, 
فَاسْعَوْ إِلَى ذِكْرِ اللَّهِ Hasten, rush to the remembrance of Allah وَذَرُوا الْبَيْعِ And leave off all buying and selling and trading. Leave off business. And Muslims still work on the day of Jummah. Still work at the time of Jummah. Not saying that you have to take Friday off, but that window, that hour for Jummah, Some of the scholars say that any business transactions that are made during that time that Jumu'ah is going on, then that money is haram. The money that you earn during that time is haram. Absolutely. The money is haram. Why? Because you are working at a time that it is prohibited for you to work. Then Allah says, فَإِذَا خُضِيَتُ الصَّلَاةُ فَانْتَشِرُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ وَبْتَغُوا مِنْ فَضْلِ اللَّهِ And then when the prayer is over, then go back out into the world and seek the provision of God. So Allah has given the command that once, no, Jumu'ah is not obligatory on women. This is for men. This commandment is for men. Jumu'ah is not obligatory on women. But what I'm saying is that what I'm saying is that the same commandment for Bani Israel not to not to fish on the Sabbath is the same commandment that was given to Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam for the Muslim men not to do business during the time of Jumu'ah. All right, so what did Bani Israel do? So the commandment is that we should not fish on the Sabbath. Okay, cool. God said don't fish on the Sabbath, right? So what we'll do is we'll go put our net in the water on Friday and we'll allow our net to catch the fish for us. And then we'll go get the we'll go collect the fish on Sunday and then we'll say, well, we didn't fish on the Sabbath. Right. We didn't fish on the Sabbath, actually. (laughs) Right. But what you did was you circumvented the command of God. So what we'll do in the Muslim community is we know that the Muslim woman is supposed to have a wali, right? And her wali should be a Muslim male family member. And even if she does not have a Muslim male family member, because as converts to Islam living in this country, many of us do not have the luxury of having a Muslim male family member. In addition to the fact that many of us do not have sound, effective Islamic leadership. So the Muslim woman who walks into an imam's office, lonely, by herself, um, new convert, no Muslim male family relatives, and to have this imam who is a complete stranger, whose job description is basically to be an employee of an organization called a masjid. He doesn't really give a damn about your well-being, quiet as kept. She becomes ultimate Pray. There you go. You walk into an imam's office, and I don't care whether it's in the African American community or in a foreign, you know, community. It doesn't matter. It happens all over the place. Stop making it seem like as African Americans, our dysfunction is an anomaly. It's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> this stuff goes on everywhere, in every community. Any woman who is a convert to Islam. And she walks into an imam's office, has no Muslim male relatives, no, you know, men in her family that are Muslim. The, you know, if you if you present yourself as a sheep, you attract wolves. 
And so the imam, rather than looking out for your well-being, may in fact be, you know, desirous of you. He may want to marry you. <laughs> or he may think that you might be a good look for his boy, or his man, his homie. Or he'll take your application and tuck it away somewhere because maybe he feels you are not attractive and none of the brothers in the community will want you. <laughs> so you're neglected on that end on so many levels. So I would say, as I've said before, as I said before, if even if you don't have a Muslim male relative, don't ever walk into an imam's office by yourself. Go get your father. Even if your father's a non-Muslim, he still loves you. He still cares about you. He still cares more about you than the imam's office that you're walking into because the imam is a complete stranger to you. He doesn't know you. We're not functioning during the time of the Prophet Sallallahu where, you know, there's this this over, you know, this overwhelming sense of responsibility before God. We don't function like that in this day and time. There's no sense of responsibility before God in the upper echelons of Islamic leadership. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. You are a complete stranger. I don't know you. Like we live in a day, we live in a time today where we only give salams to people that we know. <laughs> right or wrong? We only give the greeting of salam to people that we know. <laughs> how, you, how in the world do you think you're going to walk into an imam's office and the imam is supposed to look at you like he looks at his own daughter? <laughs> no, where they do that at? Where does that happen at? <laughs> The imam sees you, a complete stranger, walking into his office as he sees his own daughter. And he's going to take on making sure you are protected in the community, making sure you get married, making sure you are educated the same way he would with his own daughter. Please. Nah. Walk into that office, go to your non-Muslim father because he still loves you more than any man on this planet. There's no man. No, that's not realistic. There's no man in this world that loves his daughter more than his father, which is why, which is why Islamically, if a woman remarries, the daughter automatically goes to her father. You understand? Islamically, when a woman remarries, the, the daughter automatically goes to her father because there's no man on the face of this earth that loves his daughter that will love and guard and protect his daughter like her biological father. In many instances, because we know sometimes biological fathers can be dysfunctional. I'm not saying that emphatically. Obviously, there are exceptions to the rule. You understand? But Islamically, if a woman remarries, she divorces the father, she remarries, the daughter automatically goes to her father. Because no man loves and protects and guards his daughter like his father. And that's provided he's not dysfunctional in one way or another, right? In a normal instance, right? So I'm saying to you, sister, as a new convert, do not walk into any man, imam's office, nobody's office and make somebody believe that you have no Muslim, you have no male guardians in your family. There are people that love you. They may not be Muslim, 
but they damn sure love you. And they love you pretty much more than the person that you are going to seek counsel with, the person you are going to seek help from. Uh, that's what I'm saying. If you decide that, no, that's not the truth. You know, Muslims, mashallah, we all love each other. You live in la la land. You want to if that's what you want to do, you can take the you can take the blue pill and uh, you can take the red pill and you can go back to sleep and wake up in your normal land. <laughs> or you can take the blue pill and I'll show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Your, your choice. You can live in La La Land or Kumbaya. We're all one ummah. You know, we're all, you know, Islam is this and Islam. Yeah, Islam is perfect. It's a perfect system. Muslims are the ones that are not. <laughs> Islam is perfect. Nothing wrong with Islam. It's the Muslims that are the problem. <laughs> so. This is why, Islamically, you should have a wali so that you do not invest more of your emotions into a situation before you marry the person. All right? You should not invest your emotions into a situation before you marry the person. If you allow yourself to fall in love first, and then you marry the person, you're setting yourself up for failure. How? How? Because if you fall in love first, right, you become compromised. When you are in love, especially for women, when you are in love, you, you are, your ability to see things as they are have been compromised. You've compromised your judgment. You've clouded your vision. You can't see things when you are in love. You overlook a lot of things. You understand? Rose-colored glasses. Absolutely. This is why we don't fall in love first. See, with non-Muslims, they got the blueprint backwards. And we think that when we look at non-Muslims, we're like, well, you know, they lived together for two or three years and they finally got married. But, you know, and that's a roll of the dice. Because that doesn't always work either. That doesn't work all the time either. <laughs> You're rolling dice. You can live with a person for three years, five years, and you've lived in a capacity as a wife or a husband with someone who did not even make a commitment to you yet. And then finally you decide to make a commitment. And maybe it works. Maybe it works. And maybe it doesn't. But you've just invested six, seven, eight years of your life into a relationship with someone who made you no commitment. If a man really loves you, if a woman really loves you, they're going to commit to you. They're going to commit. They're going to commit to you. And I don't need seven years of your life to make a commitment to you. Right. You're giving wife or husband privileges to somebody who is just, you know. Someone who's a girlfriend or a boyfriend. How many women are ready for marriage at the beginning of that relationship? Ready for marriage and got to wait seven, eight, nine, ten years for the man to decide, all right, I'm ready to make a commitment. So the whole time she's ready for the commitment. 
He's not ready for a commitment, but he, you're still committed to him or you're still committed to her in a capacity that they don't actually deserve. They don't deserve that. And so Muslims, we look at this situation, we look at the non-Muslim situation and we like, oh, they got it all figured out. So we begin to do the same thing. How many Muslims have had sexual relations, premarital sexual relations with individuals because under the guise of you want to try it out first? So let me get this straight. You want to try it out first, right? And I've heard people use the car analogy, you know, you want to try the car out before you drive it off the lot and all of these different analogies to justify a behavior that is unbecoming of anyone who has any inkling of God consciousness. So you want to risk going to paradise on trying out whether or not someone's sex is worth staying with them or not. And the sex, what happens now when the sex is actually good? Sex is great, but his personality is horrible. His etiquette, his mannerisms, horrible. His sense of humor, her sense of humor, horrible. You want to try it out first. But in the process of you trying it out, you are jeopardizing, you know, your paradise. You're jeopardizing your relationship with God. You're jeopardizing your faith. The Prophet Wasallam said that when the person commits fornication, that his iman leaves him. And it hovers over him like a, like, a, like a cloud. Because you have done something so egregious. You have done something so horrible that your iman has to leave you and hover over top of you until you stop committing the act. Your faith has to exit your body completely. You understand? Your iman, you have done something so horrible that in the Islamic tradition, your iman has to leave you completely until you stop committing that sin and then your iman returns back to you. That's how horrible. And so you want to, under the guise of trying it out. I, I, I just believe, me personally, I believe, you know, Muslims who say things like this, I, I, it's just a testament to where they are spiritually or where they're not spiritually. All right. And it's, it's really sad that you would have a Muslim who says they they believe in a law in the last day and that they their sole purpose in life is to serve God and their final destination is to get to paradise. It, it's really sad to have someone who says they believe in all of those things utter a comment like I need to test it out first before, you know. And provided if if. You know, you're not satisfied with the sex, you know, after the, the marriage and make no mistake about it. The sex is not physical. The sex is more mental and psychological than it is physical. Statistically. <laughs> Which is why a woman can enact an orgasm without even be, being touched because it's it's psychological. It's mental. The biggest sex organ in the body is what? <laughs> Please, someone help me. It's not your private part. The biggest sex organ in the body is what? Your brain. Thank you. Your brain. A woman can give herself an orgasm, just mental stimulation, without even touching her. A man can give a woman an orgasm without even touching her, from talking to her, stimulating her mental. So you have women 
who are so shallow to think that, well, I need to test it out first to see if it's good. Not really realizing that the real sex organ is not his genitalia, it's the mental. Can he stimulate you mentally? Can he stimulate you mentally? But that just speaks volumes to where that person is. But in Islam, we don't fall in love first. Because when you fall in love first, before you, you know, you've actually seen the person in their element, you begin to overlook things. And then you wake up after the honeymoon phase is over with, realizing that you have married a monster. You have married a monster. You have married your worst nightmare. But you, you know, the rose colored glasses, you were gone. Same thing with the brothers. The brothers do the same exact thing. You in love with the sister, you know, you thinking about this woman all day long, you texting her, you, you going all out, you buying roses, you showing up at the sit down, you know, sharpening straight up like, you know, she got you going, man, got you open. And then after you marry her and the drugs wear off, now you complaining. Every little thing she does gets on your nerve. She can't cook. Well, she couldn't cook before you married her. <laughs> you just couldn't see that <laughs> because when you in love, anything tastes good. <laughs> Right. She couldn't cook before you married her. She didn't clean before you married her, but you couldn't see that. You couldn't see that she had stains all on her overgarment at the sit down. You didn't see that, though, because all you saw was I want to get married. We don't fall in love first. You contain yourself. You contain yourself so that you go to the sit down with, you know, rational, logic thinking. You understand? And you are able to negotiate with the person with a sound mind, with good old fashioned common sense. You get to negotiate with the person. You are negotiating your needs. You're negotiating, you know, your expectations. It's a business. Yes. It's a business. You are negotiating your expectations. That is what you are doing when you go to the table for a sit down. You are going to negotiate your demands, your requests, and your expectations of the person. You understand? That is what it's a negotiation. But if you are if you are emotionally compromised, you can't negotiate, which is why the Prophet ﷺ said that if you are angry that the judge, it is haram for a judge to rule in a situation while he is angry. Which is why the divorce that is pronounced when the man is extremely angry, it doesn't count. Why? Because you are compromised. You are compromised emotionally. So anything that you do while you are emotionally compromised, Islamically, is null and void. Islamically, it's not going to count. Why? Because you weren't in your right frame of mind. You follow me? If a man is extremely angry to the point where he doesn't realize what he's saying, the gravity of what he's saying, if he pronounces divorce on his wife in that situation, Islamically does not count. Obviously, Ibn Qayyim broke down anger into three categories. And we're talking about the most extreme form of anger. Where the person doesn't even recall saying it, doesn't even realize what he's doing. 
In that instance, it doesn't, ca- it doesn't count. The divorce doesn't count. Why? Because the person is emotionally compromised. The Prophet said, That the, the, the judge should not rule in a situation while he is angry. Because you're emotionally compromised. And therefore, you should not sign a marriage contract when you are in love. <laughs> because you're going to overlook a lot of things. You're going to accept a lot of things. You're going to look past a lot of things. And then all of that stuff comes back to you once the drugs wear off. Once the dopamine, the oxytocin, once all of those drugs wear, wear off, right, after the honeymoon phase is over with, and you begin to, the mask comes off of your spouse, and you now begin to see them in their element as they are, you're going to kick yourself in the behind. <laughs> you're going to realize, man, I made a, I made a huge mistake. Right. You're looking like, who in the world did I marry, man? Who in the world did I marry? Stop making decisions while you're intoxicated. (laughs) Bad business deal. Yes. Which is why Allah tells us not to come to the Salat while we are drunk or intoxicated because you can't understand what you're saying. Oh, you who believe, do not come to the prayer intoxicated until you can understand what you are saying. You're, you're going to, you, you, your salat is invalid because you, you're compromised. <laughs> you don't even know what you're saying. So we don't fall in love first. Try to maintain yourself, contain yourself. It's okay to feel a little butterflies in your stomach when you see the person. It's okay to, you know... You know, like the person's name when you hear it, that's okay. But you also have to understand that I still have my expectations that I need to negotiate. And I still have my requests that I need to negotiate. And you can't negotiate while you're intoxicated. Stop going into marriages while you are intoxicated. Stop trying to negotiate while you're intoxicated. Simple. Avoid personal calls, texts, alone time, and We keep saying this over and over and over again, and the brothers and sisters just don't listen. Don't listen. And this is how we end up with, you know, I'm just really curious at how a Muslim ends up pregnant with another Muslim and they're not married. How did that happen? How do you end up pregnant with someone's kid that's, you're Muslim, that person is Muslim, and... You end up pregnant and y'all not married. How does that happen? <laughs> How? And then you go and you marry on the premise that I don't already committed zina with this person. How long is that going to last? <laughs> you married each other because you committed adultery? Because you committed fornication? How, and, and you got married, that was the premise upon which you got married. How long do you think that's going to last? How long do you think that's going to last? It's, it's just you're delusional. <laughs> Allah's not going to put any barakah, any blessing into anything that is done outside of the boundaries of what He legislated. <laughs> There's no barakah in that.
Right, just cut your losses. Say, you know, we did something that was haram and that's that. But I'm not going to marry you to make that right because we can't make that right. There is no making that right. You know what makes that right? Toba, repentance. Repentance is the only thing that makes that right. Marrying the person does not make it right. Keep it pushing. There you go. Make toba. Keep it moving. We did something that was haram. We shouldn't have done. But I'm not going to marry you. Why? Because the fact that we did what we did is a proof that we are not good for each other. I, I, and, and I pray that there's no children involved with that. But if in fact you did this with someone, then just cut your losses and use the fact that you've now decided to not marry the person, use that as part of your toba. Use that as part of your repentance. Say, oh Allah, I did something that was haram with this individual. And I really have feelings for this individual. But I am going to cut this relationship out. I'm going to make toba to you. And I'm going to leave that situation in hopes that you would forgive me. Make that part of your toba. But you're going to have your cake and eat it too. You're going to commit fornication and adultery. You're going to make toba and then you're still going to marry the person and you believe that, that, that that's going to turn out like what? You guys are going to ride off into the sunset, the white picket fence, and you're going to show up on the Eid holding hands and everything is going to be all, you know, all Gucci. <laughs> no, it doesn't. That, that's only in a fairy tale. You are not Cinderella. <laughs> it does not work like that. Right. Leave the sin and leave the person that's associated with the sin in hopes that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will forgive you for the sin. Yeah. But you have some people who are going to continue. They're going to push it. We're going to make toba. We're going to go to the mash it and we're going to get married. MashaAllah. OK. Let me know how that works out for you, man. Let me know how that works out for you. Yeah. OK. Number three. Um, the power struggle. All right, almost done. Number three, power struggle. All right, what do I mean by power struggle? In, in some relationships, in some marriages, there's a power struggle where the man or the woman wants to remain who they are. They do not want to change. They don't want to change. Even though they see how their lack of change is affecting their marriage. They're not going to change. This is the way that I am. This is the way that I've always been. You'll hear people make these references to who they were and how they were raised. And basically, you should just accept it. Right. You're still trying to main your individuality in a, you know, in a situation that is plurality. You know, you're in a plural situation. It's you and your spouse. It's not, it's not just you. You're trying to maintain your individuality in a situation that is, you know, requires plurality. All right. And so you what the person does is they force the other spouse to kind of meet them where they are. Meanwhile, they sit from a place of privilege. I'm not going to change. This is who I am. Right. Uh, this is who I am. I'm not changing. You should have known that before you married me. This is the type of person that I am. Right. You become a project. So now it forces the other spouse to kind of work twice as hard. Now, keep in mind, the other spouse has their own issues as well. 
But now they have to kind of like compromise with you because you are stonewalling and not willing to change. Build a bear. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. <laughs> Build a bear. That's funny. <laughs> All right. So now it becomes a power struggle because now you, you're tired of this person being the way that they are. You need this person to change and the person doesn't want to change. So there's this power struggle, right? So how do we get beyond this? How do we get the person to change? How do we get the person to see that, you know, how you are and your unwillingness to change is affecting our relationship? You are not in this relationship by yourself. This is not your relationship. It is our relationship. <laughs> you don't get to stay where you are and have me just meet you where you are. That's, that's a privilege. And that's a toxic mentality. That's a privilege and a toxic mentality. No, I'm going to give you some tips uh, how you can deal with this. All right. So one of the ways that you could try to deal with this is that you got to build emotional intelligence. You have to build emotional intelligence where you have to begin to make the person become more emotionally in tune with the marriage. There's the physical part of the marriage, the husband providing the woman, you know, doing her share, her part. That's the physical. That's the physical surface of the marriage. And then beneath that surface, there's the emotion. There's the emotional availability. There is the emotional intelligence. All right. I talked before about the five love languages, you know, being able to read your spouse's language and being in tune with, you know, your spouse's emotional you know, cues. All right. That is the that is the, the the deeper the deeper level of the relationship. Some people are there, some people are not there. But you have to begin building emotional intelligence. You have to begin building emotional intelligence. Talking more about how this made you feel, how that made you feel, and the more and more you talk about it, the more and more like you know I wasn't always like that. I didn't. I wasn't raised with my mother and my father. You know what I mean? Like where did I learn this? You understand what I'm saying? Like it, it's a process. It's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But women, you guys can do a great job by helping your husband, helping your spouse to now become more in tune, more emotionally conscious and intelligent, aware. And we, we know. We, we know when our wives are upset. We know when they are offended by something we say. We're not ignorant. We just don't care. In many instances, we don't care, but we know we're, we're not just like emotionally unintelligent. We know when we've offended you. We know when we've done something wrong. Look at how we rush to try to physically fix the problem, right? We'll go buy roses. We'll take you out and buy you something. That's physical. That's physical. Emotionally would be to say, hey, um, I'm aware that I did this or I said this and that offended you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that offended you. That is, you know, now you're repairing. You're repairing the situation from the inside, not going to do something from the outside. Right. 
You have some people who like to correct the situation from the outside. So the man offends you or does something wrong, and then he goes and buys roses. When he hands you the roses, you have to stop him right there and say, while I love the roses, they're beautiful, but this does not repair the damage that you did to me. What I need you to do is acknowledge the wrong that you did and then give me the roses and then watch my response. Acknowledge what you did that was wrong. Acknowledge the emotion that you created and apologize for that. Make amends for that. And then hand me the roses. And then women, once a man does that, then show him the response. Don't just say, yeah, well, I'm still in my feelings. Uh, you can still be in your feelings, but you got to validate that. He at least went about it the right way. So show him what happens when he goes about it the right way. And then guess what's going to happen? <laughs> He's going to make a pattern out of that. He's going to make a habit out of that. It becomes pathology. It becomes pathological. He'll continue. You understand? Positive reinforcements. But you have some women, even though the man apologized, even though he took you out, bought you some shoes, bought you a pocketbook, you still will not acknowledge. There you go. Acknowledge the effort. You won't acknowledge it. So what, it, what, what message are you sending to him? What message are you sending that no matter what you do, you can never repair the damage that you. And it's like, come on, we're human. We're human. We're reparable. We're not broken down to our low, lowest molecule that we can't be fixed. <laughs> like training an animal. I don't know if I would use that reference, but yeah, somewhat what she said. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a. You have to, you, you got a positive reinforcement. You got to let him know, okay, you followed the right protocol. And this is the response. I'm talking about infractions that are minor. I'm not talking about adultery. I'm not going to the deepest end of the highest level of infractions. That requires a whole different approach. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about minor infractions. Telling you that he'll be home at seven and he doesn't show up until nine, right? You understand? I'm talking about minor infractions. I'm not talking about you caught him cheating. <laughs> that that's something totally different. I don't understand like why our minds always go there. We go like to the deepest end of, you know what I mean? Like Fornication and adultery is not something that I deal with on a regular basis. So my mind doesn't usually go there unless I have to, right? Unless I'm trying to make a point. I'm dealing with minor infractions, right? So what about when he only wants to acknowledge physically but refuses to do so? I just gave you the blueprint. I just told you. <laughs> when he does something physically, make the connection for him right there on the spot. He says, babe, I, I'm sorry. You know, he says, babe, come on. I'm going to take you to get a pocketbook or I'm take you to get some shoes. Or, I'm going to take you out for dinner. While you guys are at dinner, explain to him that while I see you are trying to make up for what you did and while the dinner is nice, while the restaurant is beautiful and I love it, it does very little for how you made me feel. So what I need you to do to put the icing on the cake is that, yes, we're here at dinner. You're trying to make up for it. But what I need you to do right now is to acknowledge my emotions, acknowledge how you feel, uh, acknowledge how you made me feel and, and take accountability for that. Because that's really all you want. 
But him taking you to dinner, buying you a pocketbook, buying, you know, doing something physical for you, that's just the icing on the cake. Don't take that without making him take responsibility for the emotion. You understand? Don't take one without making him accountable for the other. That's what I'm saying. You got you got you guys follow me. Don't take one without making him accountable for the other. Because if you go out to dinner and you're still in your feelings, you're still angry. What you did was you told him that, hey, every time you offend me, all you got to do is buy me something and we're good. I'm going to still be in my feelings, but we're good. So now you are teaching him that the only way to make up for his wrongs is by doing something physical, financial or doing something for you. So you're basically training him to continue disrespecting you. Don't take one without the other. No. It's like when we were young and your, your dad said he was coming to pick you up and then he doesn't come pick you up. And then he sees you at a family gathering and then he comes and he brings you a gift. And it's like, no, nah, I'm not accepting that. Now, nah, you need to own the fact that you said you were going to come get me. You never came. You never called. You never no. And you don't just show up handing me a gift and everything is OK. No, I'll take your gift. But I also want you to acknowledge the wrong that you did and the damage that you caused me. Make people own what they do. Don't take the gift without making them acknowledge the pain. You understand? You guys follow me. Does this make sense? I'm giving you guys free game. This stuff is free. <laughs> and when I upload it to the podcast, there will be a button on there for sponsorship. Donate. If you believe that this information is pertinent, if you believe that this information is effective, you understand? Support that, right? So, uh, it's, it's on there, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, I'll highlight it again. I'll figure, figure out how to make that. All right, so the power struggle. So, number one is to make the person own, right? Make the person own. So, we're talking about emo- emotional intelligence. The person needs to become more emotionally intelligent, all right? Um, the second thing is that change starts from the inside, not from the outside. And this is for for the men, because we believe that we can get a woman to change by forcing that from the outside. So I'm going to deny you sex. Uh, I'm going to stop coming home. Um, I'm going to go to counseling and I'm going to use the counseling session to, you know, bash you. Uh, I'm going to stop buying stuff for you. These are all external or external things. That is not going to foster real change. That is not going to foster, right, real change. What fosters real change is that it has to be motivated from the inside, not from the outside. Sometimes we, we threaten a woman with divorce. I'm going to divorce you. Well, this relationship is not working. Well, this situation, I think we should just go, right? It fosters fear, number one, and we should not be putting people in fear. That's not our job. We fear God, not man, right? We fear God, not man. And no husband should make it his job or his duty to make his wife fear him. Whether fear him physically, fear him emotionally due to emotional neglect, fear him financially 
you know, all of these, and, you know, and many instances in the Muslim community, the, you know, the power dynamics is in the hands of the man simply because at any given point he can pronounce divorce. And it could be for the smallest little thing. It could be for the most minuscule thing, but it's in his hands. It's, it, it, you know, and they, that comes with a responsibility. Allah did not just give us that for us to abuse it because we want a woman to function the way that we want her to function in the marriage. It doesn't work like that. Real change starts from within, not from without. Threatening a woman with being divorced is not going to foster real change. It's not going to be authentic. It's not going to be organic. She's only going to do it because she's in fear of being divorced. But the moment she's no longer in fear, right? Guess what's going to happen? <laughs> The moment she doesn't fear being divorced anymore, guess what happens? She calls your bluff. <laughs> she's she's going to call your bluff. Like, I'm not in fear anymore. You're going to divorce me? Go ahead. But I'm going to still do me. <laughs> you understand? So if you want change to happen, change starts from the inside. So let me explain to you how to help foster change from the inside. Trying to get the person to understand how their behavior is affecting you. And if the person really loves you, when you really love someone, you don't like to see them hurt. You don't like to see the person that you love hurt. You don't. And that's real love because you don't hurt the person that you love. You understand? You don't hurt the person that you love. So when you try to get the person to see like, this is how your behavior is affecting me. You want them to now start taking accountability for themselves based upon the way that they, their actions, their behavior is affecting you. And that's where real change comes from because it's coming from the inside. The person feels horrible, like, damn, I made you feel like that. Damn, I did that. Now, I need to stop this because I'm tired of seeing you hurt. I'm tired of seeing you hurt. So, for example, when a man is doing all that he can, you know, he provides for the woman. He takes care of the family. He shoulders the responsibility that he is supposed to shoulder as a man. And the woman is just utterly unappreciative of it. Everything that he does is never good enough for her. All right. He, at that moment, has to level with her and make her understand that when you make comments like this, when you make statements like this, this is the way that it makes me feel. And if you love me, why do you keep hurting me? Because that's not love. Love doesn't hurt. Not in that way anyway. And if the person is, you know, has a heart, right, is conscious. When you're dealing with a person that says if she doesn't act right, she's going to get divorced. Uh, that's not, to me, that's not a person who is marriage material. That person is not marriage material. I'm, I'm talking about real men. I'm talking about real men who, you know, really want to be in a marriage, really want to be a family man, really want to be a part of this family dynamic. That's what I'm, that's who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a, a, a tyrant who just use women for his own needs. And the moment he, you know, doesn't need her anymore, he discards her. That, that's not who I'm talking about. Men like that don't even deserve to be married. Unfortunately, in the Muslim community, many women are just that desperate that they'll marry anybody and then they'll tolerate anything, you know, and that time is coming. That, that time is coming where women are kind of waking up in the Muslim community 
All right. Um, but I'm not talking to those type of men. <laughs> I'm not talking to those type of men. I'm talking to the men who, you know, for, you know, for, for whatever reason, maybe they didn't grow up with a father. They didn't grow up with, you know, dual parenting, you know, and they lack certain skills as a result of, you know, circumstances, upbringing, that and and they're looking to get better. They look. They're looking to enhance their skill set as a husband, as a father. You know what I mean. And there are many men out there that want to be better, want to do better. Those are the men that I am talking to. I'm not talking about the men who believe that women they exploit women for their own purposes, for their own reasons, and they discard them when they no longer need them. That, that's not who I'm referring to. All right. Um, so real change starts from within, not from without, from internal motivation, not external threats, right? Number four, focus on the action, not on the, per on the person. All right. I'm, I need to run through this really quickly because we're coming up on time. Focus on the action, not on the person. That was another thing that I mentioned in the podcast. What that means is that when a person offends you. All right. The thing that you focus on is the action that they did to offend you, not on the person. Don't make it a personal attack on the individual. And this is something for, you know, men and women to understand husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend. If you're non-Muslims and you're listening, don't focus on the person, because when you make it a personal attack, the person's wall goes up and you're never going to get beyond that wall. And it just becomes a shouting match, an arguing match. And I don't know about you, but I don't have a lot of energy in me to argue. I'm not an argumentative person. I like to state what I need to state and I keep it moving. You know what I mean? Like I hear you. I, I got you. I'm, I'm not incompetent. I understand what you're saying. I got you just because I don't agree with you doesn't mean that I don't hear you. All right. But I am not into the arguing and back and forth. All right. I seen a, a meme the other day. No adult works 40 hours a week and want to come home and argue. Nobody. <laughs> you understand? I, I don't put the hours that I put in at work, especially as a teacher. I'm yelling at kids all day long. You think I want to come home and argue with my spouse? I, I don't have it. <laughs> I don't have it in me. <laughs> I'm going to state what I need to state. I hear you. I got you. I received your message. Roger that. And I'm going to keep it moving. <laughs> you understand? But don't make it a personal attack on the individual. Remove the individual from the equation. So when you approach your spouse about something that they did that made you feel a certain type of way, this is what you do. You say, what you said or what you did made me feel like this. This is the way that it made me feel. Because ultimately, that's all you want. You want the, the feeling to be acknowledged and to be repaired. It's not a personal attack on your spouse. So remove them from the equation. Concentrate on the action, not the person. So don't say you are this or you are that because that's a personal attack on the person. And what's a person going to do? Any, like anybody is going to do, they're going to defend themselves. Oh, you're trying to say I'm stupid now? Oh, you're trying to say I'm incompetent now? Oh, you're trying to say I'm dumb? Oh, you're trying to say this? No, I'm not saying any of that. I said what you said earlier, this is the way that it made me feel. 
Make him or her take responsibility for their action and take responsibility for how their action affected you. No personal attack on them. Let me just block this guy. You understand? So it's not about the person because when you make it personal, you're never going to get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I got you. It's just we in this for different reasons, obviously. Um, But don't make it a personal attack on the person. Concentrate on the action. This is the way that you made me feel when you said this or you did that. The only thing the person can say at that point is, well, I'm sorry that it made you feel like that. That's not what I intended. That's not what I meant. I I don't care what you intended or what you meant. I'm telling you that this is the way that it affected me. And then give the person the opportunity to acknowledge that, apologize for that. Done deal. Keep it moving. But when you try to break the person down, you try to break the person down, you make it a personal attack on the individual. Now you have a problem. Now you have an argument. Don't even focus so much on why he did it or why he, she did it or I know why you said that. I'm not getting into why you did it. You have your reasons. It's not my job to open your chest up, look into your heart and to see why you said it or why you did it. That's not my, that's not my, that's not my responsibility. The only thing I am responsible for is my emotions, how you made me feel. Uh, what about when your spouse continued to say you made me do this mistake or you made is that the same? No, nobody can make you do anything. And then I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg, because actually, if you go deeper, you are not even actually responsible for the other person's feelings. You got to look at yourself because sometimes um, we're triggered by something that our spouse did or said and. It's not even the other person's fault. It's your fault for being triggered. I have a book called Emotional Intelligence. I'll take a screenshot of it and I'll share it with you, right? Emotional intelligence. Your spouse may do or say something that may trigger you in a certain way. And then you rush to your spouse and make them take ownership for how you felt when in fact they didn't do anything wrong. They just triggered you. They don't know what your triggers are. They don't know what happened to you in the past that made you triggered by this statement or that statement. So it actually doesn't even become about your spouse. It becomes about you. If you were triggered a certain way because of something that your spouse did or said, is it your spouse's fault or your fault? It's your fault. Nobody can make you feel any way. Nobody can make you feel Any way that you don't want to feel if somebody did something or said something that triggered you a certain way, you have to look at yourself and ask yourself, why did that comment trigger you like this? Why did that comment? And that's a whole nother level. I really didn't even want to go there because many of us are not. We not even at the first stage that I mentioned, let alone this. (laughs) We not even at the first level. To be, you know, emotionally intelligent and to start taking responsibility for our own emotions. Like a person could say whatever they want to say to you. How they trigger you is your fault, not theirs. They can say whatever they want to say. Because there are certain people that say certain things to us and we brush it right off like it's nothing. And then there are certain people who can say the same exact thing and it triggers us a certain way. 
You understand? So it's not the words or the behavior that triggers us. It is us and our previous experiences with that person or that comment or that statement that is triggered. You understand? It's not your spouse's responsibility. I don't know what experiences you've had in the past. I'm just me. And I said what I said. Right. And you were triggered by something that I said. And then you come and you make me take ownership for your emotions. I am not responsible for your emotions. You say, well, you said this and this is the way it made me feel. Well, guess what? Was it something wrong with what I said or something wrong with the way that you felt? The way you were triggered by what I said. And that's not to say that, you know, no one is at fault when we make comments or make statements. Yeah, some things are inappropriate. Absolutely. Some things just don't need to be said. But the way that we are triggered is our responsibility. We can't make somebody else take ownership for our emotions. How do you make somebody else take ownership for your emotions? White people are famous for that. You can be sitting somewhere, right? I was just in the library the other day, right? And talking to my wife or whatever. White guy turns around and says, we're in a library. Lower your voices. And I said, well... The person standing on the left of you is talking. You didn't say anything to them. So it's not my voice that triggered you. Possibly my hue. <laughs> Possibly my wife's hijab. You understand? Because the person sitting right next to you, they're talking as well. And they're closer to you than I am. And they're louder than I am. So why did you feel comfortable turning around asking me to lower my voice when the person sitting right next to you, you said nothing to them? Because it wasn't my voice that triggered you. You understand? And white people are famous for making other people take responsibility for their emotions. That's how they're raised. They're raised making other people take responsibility for their emotions. A cop is triggered, right? <laughs> and he's going to take him being triggered out on this young black man or this young black woman because you're triggered. So now somebody else has to be accountable because of your emotional triggers, right? White people are famous for this. Black people, we just kind of, we suppress everything because that's our nature, right? We're sitting somewhere, white person is loud or whatever. We're not going to say nothing. We're going to whisper to one another like, that. this dude mad loud, blah, blah, blah. But let a black person do that. And a white person is going to make you be responsible for how you are triggering them. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. So all these podcasts and all these, you know, emotional intelligence or whatever the case may be, they, they need to take a page out of their own book. And that's not all white people. I'm not, obviously, I'm not, you know, broad brushing it. But many white people, many white people, yeah. They, they make other people take responsibility for their emotions and their triggers. So in our relationships, we have to avoid doing that. All right. And that's a that's a whole nother level of emotional intelligence. Uh, I'm, I'm not I, what I am saying is that if your spouse triggers you and you need to confront your spouse. All right. You need to confront your spouse. Then you confront the action and how it affected you, not the individual. Don't attack the individual, because if you attack the only thing the person is going to do is put up a wall. It's going to become a shouting match. All right. You're going to throw darts at each other, point out each other's faults and mistakes. Well, you do the same thing. Well, what about when you do it? Right. That's that's a dark match. I'm not getting into a dark match with you. Right. We're not throwing darts. Well, you do this or you do that. That's childish. Like some of us, are, I'm in my 40s. Like I, I don't have the ability to throw darts at you. I'm sorry. Right. 
Last one is uh, something very important. Um, I'm going to skip the last one because some of you guys um, may have had some questions or whatever. Um, so I'm going to skip the last one. And, uh, and I'll, just, I'll just mention it without explaining it. My last one was um, um, not arguing doesn't mean that everything is okay. Men have a tendency to believe that when a woman is not arguing, she's fine. She's fine. Everything is cool. I don't hear her mouth. Everything is good. And with women, with many women, is when you don't hear their mouth, you, you should be concerned. If she's not saying anything, then you should be concerned. <laughs> so uh, here again, this is the man logic versus <laughs> women. <laughs> now my wife is staring at me, right? Right when she's right when she's not saying anything, you should be worried. Men, we tend to think, well, she ain't saying nothing about it, so we're all good. <laughs> and we walk around the house like, you know, like, we're, we're, I'm fine. I'm sliding through like grease. I'm good. She didn't say anything. But believe it or not, if she's not saying something, you in trouble. Because what it's doing is it's festering. It's boiling. <laughs> right? <laughs> She she is it's, it's, she's just waiting for the right moment, the right trigger, the right situation, and she's coming for you. She's coming for your head. So what men need to do, what we need to do is that when we see that our wives are silent, right? And I know this from my mother, right? I know that my principal called home. I already know that. But when I get home, my mom is in the kitchen, right? And she's not saying anything. Quiet, you know, it's, it's an eerie silence, it's, it's uh, unusual. And then you go in your room, you're like, ah, well, maybe the principal didn't call. Maybe my mom overlooked it. Maybe, you know, she's in her merciful moment. And then you go in your room and then your mom comes in right behind you with the belt. And you're like, oh, <laughs> right? She, she was just processing. <laughs> she was just processing how to... Where to hit you because it's all calculated, right? Where to hit you, how she's going to hit you, what she's going to hit you with. Should I hit him with my hand? Should I hit him with a belt? Should I, you know, <laughs> she just calculating her moves. How she, you know, is it the right time? You know, sometimes my mom used to be like, get out my face because if I hit you right now, I'm going to hurt you, right? That doesn't mean that she's not going to hit you. <laughs> that just means right now <laughs> is not the time. But, you know, or she might be waiting for you to do one more thing, right? <laughs> One more thing to trigger her. And it's like, that's it. <laughs> you understand? False hope. There you go. <laughs> False hope. So, brothers, when you're married to women, these are, they're just replicas of our mothers. Understand that they are extension. They still have the same emotions. They still have the same design and makeup. <laughs> and many of them are mothers themselves. So, when you look at your wife Understand that when you see that she's triggered by something, she's bothered by something, don't just assume that because she's not saying anything, everything is cool. No. Take the initiative. Even don't ask, is everything okay? Don't ask. Don't say, is everything all right? Because she's going to be like, yeah, everything cool. Everything all right. Because she's still processing that. Take initiative. And to say, um, if there was something that I did, 
Um, I apologize. Just point it out to me. Let me know what I said or what I did or whatever. And let me take ownership of it. All right. Lead with that. Let, help her to put her guard down. Help her to put her guard down. Because now what you've done is you've set the stage for reconciliation. You've set the stage for reconciliation. She might not want to talk about it right now because she's still processing it. But you've already let her know that if it was something that I did or something that I said, you know, let me know so I can I can fix it. Let me fix it. All right. But you've already set the stage. So now she can let her guard down because now she realizes I don't have to fight with him. But when she knows she has to fight, she's gathering up all of her strength, all of her energy, right? Because she knows that this is about to be an argument. It's about to be a fight. So not only does she have to communicate to you her emotions, she also has to be guarded now because of your retaliation. So it's, it's a war. It's the, you know, the art of war. You got to learn how to let the, your opponent let, put their guard down. And set the stage for reconciliation. Like, listen, I know you don't feel like talking about it right now, but if it's something that I did or something that I said, I just want to let you know that, you know, whatever it is, is let me fix it. Let me repair that, inshallah, when you're ready to talk. And give her that space to process it. Women process things differently than men do. It takes them a little longer to process certain things. So for men, it's like we're very logical. Everything kind of makes sense to us. And we're very quick on our feet. Women, you know, all of that stuff. The wiring is completely different. The wiring is completely different. And so you got to give them an opportunity to process. She might not say nothing to you for days because she's still processing. But what you want to do as a man is to say, not wait for her to finish processing and then come at you with her claws out. No, you want to set the stage for reconciliation that whenever you are ready to talk about it, I just want you to know that I apologize for anything that I did. And, you know, give me an opportunity after I hear you out to fix it. Done deal. We don't need to talk about it right now, but I do want you to know that when you are ready to talk about it, you have my undivided attention and I will fix whatever I need to fix. Inshallah. All right. So these are just some tools, man. If you guys, if you guys enjoy what you are hearing right now, two things. Number one, go to the podcast, support the podcast. Number two, um, you will hear more of this during our two-day marriage retreat uh, at in Orlando, Florida, which will be happening July 19th to the 21st. We will be in Orlando, Florida. We'll be working with couples, myself, along with that clay couple. Shout out to Hassan and Nayila, awesome marriage counselors. Mashallah, tabarakallah. Um, we will be working with singles as well as couples, inshallah ta'ala. All right. Um, on the podcast, on each and every episode, there should be a sponsor button. It should be a button that says sponsor. And if you click that button, it will allow you to make a donation. It will allow you to, you know, donate whatever it is you would like to donate. Um, but please, inshallah ta'ala, if you want more information, you can just email me, inshallah ta'ala. So this is uh, the first, inshallah. So every week I will upload... Uh, Yes, the podcast is on Anchor, on Anchor app. You can look up Shadid Muhammad under uh, uh, People, or you can look up the Maradiya show. As we move through the summer, inshallah ta'ala, as I move around, I will try to, you know, bring other people on and have more, you know, um, you know, 
entertaining discussions, you know, uh, whether men, women, whether Muslim, non-Muslim, you know, if you would like to be on a podcast, if you would like me to interview you, if you would like to sit down at a table and have a discussion, uh, please reach out to me, man. I, I mean, like, this is not about celebrities. This is not about celebrity imams or, you know, important people. Um, I think everybody has their own individual perspective to bring to the table. And if you would like to, you know, if I'm in your city, if I'm in your, you know, I will be in uh, Atlanta, um, June the 27th, the 28th, uh, the, I believe the last weekend in June, inshallah, I will be in Atlanta for three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, I will be giving the khutbah at the West End Masjid, uh, the flyer I posted on the, um, on my Instagram page. So if you are in the Atlanta area, you want to, uh, want me to interview you, or you know, someone who has some, you know, some, some insight and have some knowledge about marriage and you would like to love to hear a discussion with them, please reach out to me. Let me know, inshallah, I'll reach out to them and try to arrange something, inshallah. All right, but we want we want to get as much information out there as possible. I will be in Atlanta in June. This will be the last weekend in June. The the flyer is on my Instagram page, uh, as well as my Facebook page. All right, I will be giving a khutbah at the um, West End Masjid, and I will be in a few places uh, throughout that weekend. So please reach out, inshallah ta'ala. Jazakumullah khair, and you guys have been great. Um, thanks for sharing. Inshallah ta'ala. Until the next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wafikum. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Shamsuddin.